Well, it's my privilege today to introduce today's speaker. So if you'd please welcome my good friend and RA, Mark Coster. <laughs> it's a real privilege for me to be up here today, but I also approach it with a little fear and trembling because I realize that any time I set foot up here on this stage, there's an opportunity for some gross blunder on my part. I remember my freshman year, when Mark Spanzel had asked me to read a Puritan prayer. I was doing fine, I was doing great in spite of my legs shaking uncontrollably. And I got to the word sepulchre. And I don't remember what I said, but it wasn't that word. And I don't know, can any of you else remember the next time I was asked to read a Puritan prayer? Or I think of it at the time, my freshman year also, when I was asked to lead worship that morning. And I said, okay, great, I'll lead worship. So I get up there and we're, start, we're singing the song, the song ends, everyone else stops. And I kept singing. It was, it was great. It was really great. And you know, I guess I developed quite a reputation because last year after a chapel I'd led worship again and Scott Burns came up to me and said, Mark, what's wrong? You didn't mess up. And I, I just thought, well, that's great. And you know, I don't even need to mention spring sing last year because I'm sure that's all too vivid in everyone's mind. <laughs> so I would just say, if I accidentally miss, mix up my words and cuss, just nod your head and act like it's okay, all right? I mean, so with that disclaimer aside, I am grateful for the opportunity to share. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me today. I pray that we would all have open hearts for what you want to teach us today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, most of us have probably heard this story, oh, 20 or 30 times in Sunday school. I think we can all remember the teacher up there trying to pound those paper cutouts on the flannel graph board, and sometimes they actually stuck up there. It's funny, you kind of see Jesus up there this week, who in subsequent weeks will fill in for John the Baptist and Peter and Paul and all the rest. You've got to love those flannel graph stories. But you know, the lesson learned from this story is so powerful, and that is the lesson of the absurdity of ingratitude. Ten men all of them healed from a most painful and hideous death. And there's no need to expound on the horrors of leprosy through songs or jokes or anything. <laughs> Did you hear the one about the leper hockey game? No, let's just skip that altogether. But you see, all of them are going to die, and Jesus healed them all. Not only did he save them from imminent death, but from living a life as a social outcast as well. In every physical way, they received a new lease on life. And the irony of the story is painfully clear. Only one came back to say thank you. It just doesn't make sense. And you know, this subject makes me think of the Israelites in the wilderness. 
They were just saved from terrible torture and from being employed by Pharaoh as his personal bricklayers. And they're witnesses of one of the most awesome displays of God's power through the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and the drowning of the most powerful army on earth. And once they step foot in the wilderness, they have the audacity to complain against God. And I think, what is your deal? Don't you remember what it's like to live back in Egypt? Did you like masonry that much? Couldn't you be thankful enough to just trust and obey God? And to the lepers, I think, do you remember what it was like to be sick with leprosy, with the horrible disease that it was? Do you remember what it was like to call out unclean, unclean, when any normal person walked by? How could you not be grateful enough to simply go back and say, thank you? And then I come back and I have to ask myself, how often am I guilty of the same sin? And that's the sin of ingratitude. In spite of all that God has done for me, how often do I harbor sin in my heart? How often am I guilty of idolatry? And how often do I simply forget to thank Him? Now I know normally speakers don't focus on one particular sin because that usually leaves some people out. For instance, if they speak on dishonesty, those that are honest feel really happy because they feel it doesn't apply to them. And after only a week and a half in sermon prep, I know that audience attention is a positive thing. But if we were honest, I think that we would admit the sin of ingratitude is far too prevalent in all of our lives. In spite of all that God has done and continues to do, we are too often ungrateful. And you know, the frightening aspect of an ungrateful heart is that if unchecked, it leads us to forget or to live as though we have forgotten what God has done. And when that happens, it is very easy for sin and idolatry to take root in our lives. It is only as we recognize and are motivated by God's grace and love in the past and promise to do the same in the future that we will have a truly grateful heart. And a grateful heart will want to live in complete surrender to the one who gave everything for us. So let's take a look at three broad categories of God's work in our lives. I want to take a look at what God has done or where we were without God, what He is doing or where we are, and what He continues to do or where He will continue to lead us. And I say these three areas could really be lumped into one large area, but for the sake of clarity, I have attempted to arrange it in a sort of chronological manner. So the first area, I believe, for which we are ungrateful is when we forget what God has done or where we were before God. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. One of the more obscure passages in the Old Testament, Dr. MacArthur referred to it in his lesson on the love of God a couple weeks ago, and I, I feel he did a pretty adequate job of exposing the text. I uh, just wanted to add my thoughts to it. <laughs> That's just a joke. Ezekiel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It's an amazing story about, it's an allegory of unfaithful Jerusalem. Starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make it clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown about thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. 
Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you a solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Skip down to verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. And in verse 2, here's the key to the passage. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. You did not remember the days of your youth Do you see their disobedience was spawned by a forgetful and ungrateful heart? And we say, how could they forget? I mean, all that God has done for them, do they not have any sense of responsibility for the one to whom they owe their very existence? It doesn't make sense. And yet, how many times are we like unfaithful Jerusalem? How long has it been since you paused to remember what life was like or would be like without Christ? How long has it been since you thought about your unworthiness before God? Just like the helpless child in the passage. How long has it been since you paused and said thank you? Because you know, we were just like the helpless child in that passage. That was us without Christ. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul was concerned when he wrote to the Ephesian believers that somehow they may take for granted the incredible blessings of God. And he takes the first three chapters to remind the believers all that God has done. In chapter 1, he describes in detail the work of the Father and the sovereignty of God in choosing us for salvation before the foundation of the world. He describes the redemption process, Christ shedding His own blood to redeem us from our sins. And the Holy Spirit being sent to seal our salvation. This clearly communicates the complete sovereignty of God in the work of salvation. And then in chapter 2, he reminds them of what their life was like before Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires And thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature object of wrath. Scott Ravanis, we just had him here a couple weeks ago, he outlines this passage like this. He says, We were dead, we were depraved, and we were doomed. We were dead in our sins. We were depraved, we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. 
We live to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. And we were doomed. We were by nature objects of wrath. And you know how excitable Scott is. He has an illustration that's pretty graphic, but I think very appropriate for sin. He says, you know, some people describe sin like this, that, that man, when original sin came into the world, that kind of like man fell off the roof of a house. And as he fell off the roof of a house, he broke his leg. And for that reason, he kind of limps around through life, just kind of being hindered, and it's just not as convenient for him with sin. But he says, you know what, he, he lives near Chicago. And when he thinks of sin, he thinks of the Sears Tower. And he says, when sin came into the world, we fell off the Sears Tower. And he says, there we are, splattered on the sidewalk, completely dead. We, we had no capacity to, limp, to even lift our head. We are dead. All right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no need to look up the Greek word for that. We all know what that means. We had no capacity at all to respond to God. Worse than that, we were objects of God's wrath. Fortunately, the passage does not stop there. What did God do? Look with me in verse 4 and following. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Paul says that's what God did for us. Then he goes on in verse 11. I think it's a real key to this whole entire passage. Verse 11 and following, he says, Therefore, remember. Verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Paul says, don't forget. Don't forget you have be, where you have come from. Lest in forgetting, you become proud and indifferent. You say, Mark, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church. I went to a Christian school all my life. I think I was saved at the age of two and a half. You know, I have a hard time relating these passages and feel that maybe I don't have as much to be thankful for as the one who was saved from a life of gross sin. And I say to you, you have a reason to be doubly thankful. Because not only did God graciously give you a strong environment in which to grow and to learn of Him and be saved, but also spared you the pain and the guilt that comes from sin messing up your life. Don't take God's grace for granted. Remember. Remember where you were without Christ. Remember your helplessness. You know, there are many other passages in the New Testament which speak of our which speak very clearly that in spite of our unwillingness and incapability to turn to God, it was only God's love and mercy that saved us. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says that He, Jesus, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2, 13 says that when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. Titus 3, 3-7 describes us as foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. It says that Christ saved us not because of things that we have done, but only because of His mercy. One last passage on this point. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, 11-14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11-14. I'm sorry. 
2, 13 and 14. But we always ought to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God loved us from the beginning so that we might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you forgotten Have you become so hard to and familiar with the gospel that verses like this don't even move you? I pray that that's not the case. This makes me think of a guy that I worked with the past couple summers when I worked for a contractor called J&L Paving. His name is Pete Ferdadovich. Pete's a very friendly guy, unsaved guy, but he's the one that fixes all the paving equipment. He's really handy. He works about 30 hours a week for J&L, and then he works full-time for the city of Oakland. During the week, he sleeps in a trailer right by the office. He only gets to go home on weekends. And you might think that he does this because maybe one job isn't enough to support his family. No. You might think that he's some sort of dysfunctional father. That's not the case either. You see, Pete's daughter has had a lot of problems with her back and has received extensive treatments from Shriners Hospital. If you know anything about Shriners Hospital, you know that they don't charge for their services. Pete's very grateful for the help that his daughter's received. He knows that without their help, she could very well spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair. For that reason, Pete donates his entire check from, from J&L to Shriners Hospital. Sure, it's hard work. Sure, it'd be easier to work only one job. But to him, it doesn't seem like a big sacrifice. And you won't find him bragging to other people about what he does. He does it because it's the only way that he can say thank you to the people that made all the difference in his daughter's life. You know, how much more has Christ done for us? Is any sacrifice that we can make too great to say thank you? We just sang a few minutes ago, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, it'd be a present that was far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. So we see that first, in order to have a truly grateful heart, we must be impacted by where we were before God or what God has done for us. Second, in order to maintain a truly grateful heart, we must be continually impacted with with what God is doing right now in our lives or where we are with God right now. I'll tell you right now, the biggest factor that will keep us from being thankful is pride. Pride can manifest itself in a multitude of ways in our lives. And in a way, you know, pride is the opposite of thankfulness. If you think about it, if we are truly thankful for everything in your life, how can you be proud? Can we say that we deserve everything? I mean, James 1.17 says that every good gift we have comes down from the Father. In Ephesians 2.10 it says, even that our good works are foreordained by God. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 4.7. In this verse, Paul asks the Corinthian people three rhetorical questions that really shows the absurdity of pride. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says this, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 
Dr. MacArthur explains it like this, quote, What does anyone have that, in one way or another, was not given to him? We did not give ourselves life, the food and care and protection we had as babies, in education, talents, the country we were born in, the opportunity to earn a living, the IQ we have, or anything else. No matter how hard we have worked, we would have nothing except for what the Lord and many others by His providential hand have given us. Christians have been given even more. We have salvation, eternal life, God's presence within us, His Word, His spiritual gifts, His love, and countless other blessings for which we have done nothing and can do nothing. All those are gifts of God's grace. We have no reason to boast either in people or possessions. Everything we have is on loan from the Lord, entrusted to us for a while to use in serving Him. End quote. A person who has received a gift can only boast in one thing, and that's the giver. Do you see the point? Any arrogance on our part is directly linked to an ungrateful heart. Any arrogance on our part is directly linked to an ungrateful heart. Let me digress just a bit to focus on a specific issue of pride. And that's the sin of self-righteousness. We've all been given so much here at Masters, and I praise God for the strong stand that we have taken on the Word of God. But we must not forget that even the spiritual truth that we have gained and the spiritual growth that we have been allowed to achieve is even a gift from the grace of God. And if this is true, we have absolutely no right to become haughty in our knowledge. And I'm afraid that all too often our knowledge of the truth, which should be used to serve the body of Christ and to evangelize the lost, becomes a club with which we use to beat anybody who does not see eye to eye with our theology. And unfortunately, this is often done in an arrogant and ungodly manner. It's just not right. And of course, I'm not suggesting compromising the truth. But listen, there are times when love for your brothers and the testimony of Christ are much more important than fine points of theology. We must always remember to hold fast to spiritual truth in a spirit of humility and gratitude. For all the gifts that God continues to lavish upon us, all we can do is give Him thanks. And we thank Him by using those gifts to serve Him. Terry Clark has a song called Thank You, and the chorus goes like this. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace that you have given us. We could ne'er repay, but from my heart I'd like to say that I thank you. So we have two of the three aspects so far. What God has done, or where we were without Christ. What he, can, where, what he is doing, and where we are with Christ, and what He will continue to do. As you'll continue to see, these will overlap. But what He will continue to do, or where we will be. He will go beyond choosing us for our salvation. He is not content to just daily shower our lives with good gifts. But He has a home for us in heaven, and is personally committed to leading us there. 1 Peter 1, 3-6. Peter tells us about the inheritance that we have. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And you see in the beginning of verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. We know that we have an internal inheritance that no matter what we do, as true children of God, it will be waiting for us when we get to heaven. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus, who is the author of our faith, is also the perfecter of our faith. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says that He will keep us strong to the end. Hebrews 13.4 says that He will never leave us or forsake us. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being changed from glory to glory. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that we cannot even fathom what God has in store for those who love Him. You know, these are just a few references to what God will continue to do until we reach our eternal home in heaven. You know, even though we don't know exactly what lies ahead, we know one thing for sure, is that in His hands, we're pretty safe. And we have the promise of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. It says that the God who has called us will be faithful to complete the work of salvation and present us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He's going to do. He's going to continue to be faithful until we are complete in Him. You say, Mark, what needs to be our response? Christ has done so much for us, and we're too often ungrateful. What should we do? Well, in Romans 12.1, I think Paul gives us the answer. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. What mercy is that? Well, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. If you're having trouble being thankful, being grateful for what God has done, I challenge you to read those 11 chapters and make a list of the mercies of God. It's the mercy of what He's done for us, expressed in Romans 5.8, in that while we were yet sinners, dead sinners, who had no capacity at all to respond to God, to respond to spiritual truth, He died for us. The mercy of what He is doing and will continue to do, as He gives us the victory in our struggles with sin in Romans 7.24 and 25. In Romans 8, He intercedes for us and makes us more than conquerors. He gives us the assurance in Romans 8, 38 and 39 of knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing will ever, ever, ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. You know, the list could go on and on. But what is our response to be? The point is, as Paul says in the second part of verse 1 of chapter 12, he says that we present our bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. Folks, you know, living sacrifices aren't partial. And living sacrifices aren't for people who are interested in living for themselves. A living sacrifice to God will gratefully give Him everything. Because in view of God's mercy, it's the only sensible response. Just like that one leper, we have to fall at Jesus' feet and humbly thank Him. How can I say thanks for the things that you have done for me? Loved so undeserved that you gave to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood he has saved me. With his power he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. One last illustration, and with this I close. This past Sunday, one of my fourth graders was talking about how we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God with our sin. And in all of his fourth grade wisdom, he said, you know, it's kind of like this. 
He said, you know, if someone saved us from drowning, and then we were real mean to him. I thought, you know what? That's right. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. You know, after all that God has done for him, done for us, how can we be mean to him? How can we not give him everything? How can we forget? You know, that little boy was right. It just doesn't make sense. 